3.16. Today, we're continuing in our series. Last week, Tab talked about the tension of living within time and how God rules over it. So this week, we're going to continue in Ecclesiastes and talk about our work. Work is an important part of our lives because we spend about one-third of our waking hours doing it. But what does the Bible tell us about the relationship between work and our hearts? We hope to get to that today. So let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. Joe? Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through 4, 6. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun, then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. There is also, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Most of us, we don't like our jobs. We don't like our boss. The work is tedious and soul-sucking. Some of our coworkers are really annoying. The commute is too long. We feel undercompensated and unappreciated. A poll conducted by Gallup tells us that 85% of workers are deeply unhappy in their jobs. We spend Monday to Friday working for the weekend. We grind and struggle all week, and we come to church for some encouragement on Sunday, only to go straight back into the battle. 
It feels like an endless cycle. And it seems like our work world is somehow separate and, and disconnected from our Sunday world. It's almost as if Sundays are for worship and Mondays are for real life. We know that the Bible tells us not to cheat, lie, or intentionally hurt people as we work. And some of us feel the freedom to share faith with others in our workplace. But what does the Bible really say about our hearts regarding how we approach the actual work? Today, we might get some answers from the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And this passage appears at first to be unrelated to work. It's quite a passage. We're going to work our way through it. And by the time we get to verse 22, we start to see the point that he's driving at. The preacher, well, he's going to agree with us. Work is hard and sometimes unfair. In fact, he's been around the block a couple of times, and he wants to tell you that the problem is far worse than you think. He's brutally honest about this and wants you to show you the whole truth. He believes you can handle the truth. And knowing the whole truth is essential for forming our heart attitude toward our work. The preacher tells us that we are working in a wicked world. He starts with the problem. Follow me in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He's saying that in the very places where we should see justice, in our courts, those places, sometimes, we see wickedness. And beyond the courts, there are places where we should see righteousness in our society. But instead of righteousness, there is this pervasive wickedness. Our business world is one of the places where we frequently find wickedness replacing righteousness. I'll tell you a story, a personal story. My, my company builds and manages a chain of outpatient imaging centers. We offer MRIs, CTs, x-rays, and such. In 2005, we opened an MRI center in the South Bay. And it did well for a while until one day, a big chunk of our business just suddenly disappeared. Something was wrong, and we started losing money really, really fast. Now, around the time this happened, I was invited to a meeting with a consultant who offered to fix this for me. To make a long story short, um, he offered his services as a middleman. He offered his services as a middleman to bribe doctors to send us patients. Yeah, that really happened. I told him no because, well, <laughs> that's illegal and I don't look good in stripes. So <laughs> I don't want to go to jail. But as I walked away, I realized why I had a problem in the South Bay. He'd already done this with somebody else. He did this with somebody else, and that's where all my business went. My business went to whoever was paying the bribes. Well, 10 years went by before I found out who did this. And it wasn't one competitor. The, the FBI caught two corrupt businesses involved with this very scheme. There were 12 people convicted. 
And these conspiracies, they were 12 people convicted in these conspiracies, and each person involved was sentenced to five to 10 years in federal prison. And that is justice, my friends. <laughs> and you know why that part of the story feels so good? It's because our hearts long for justice. Our hearts long to see righteousness prevail. Look at me in verse 17. Look at me in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. See, God will judge. And we know that there is life beyond this evil world where justice will ultimately be done. That tells us that when temptation comes to cheat, to take a bribe, or participate in evil, there are more important things to consider than our own gain or our own success. Justice will ultimately be done. But sometimes, justice doesn't happen when we think it should. Verse 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What does that mean, God is testing them? I think this refers to the prior, prior thought. It means that God will judge, but he chooses his own time. God delays judgment to give people the opportunity to repent. The people show instead they are inclined to even more wickedness to each other. In my story, justice was delayed 10 years. I had to close that South Bay Imaging Center, and people lost their jobs. I lost $3.5 million that my friends had invested in our business. And those corrupt businessmen and their conspirators, well, they caused that to happen. They went to prison, and they were ordered to pay $50 million in restitution to the government <laughs> and to the insurance companies that they build. Um, none of that restitution went to us. God has chosen to delay judgment. Why? It says that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Who, who sees them as beasts? Is it God? No, no, God. God sees his own image in every person because he put it there. But people, people don't treat each other with the dignity that the image of God deserves. People dehumanize other people whom they want to harm unjustly. They just characterize them as subhuman. If we ignore their moral value, then anything goes. We can use them, abuse them, or kill them because they're not like us. Wickedness 
replaces justice and righteousness. Justice will come, but justice is delayed. And people treat one another like animals. This is what it's like working in a wicked world. This is truth from God that resonates in our hearts and minds. And don't you see this too? I mean, we see this, and this is ugly. But I ask you, aren't you glad this is in the Bible? That brutal honesty shows that the preacher, the preacher, he gets it. He understands the world that we live in, and maybe that gives him credibility when he gets around to telling us what to do about it. But um, he's not done yet. He's not done yet with telling us about the wickedness. Verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. One dies, and so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth? Yeah. People die. Animals die. The process looks exactly the same. But the preacher leaves a clue here. He leaves a clue to something more. He uses the phrase, all are from dust, and to dust all return. And where have we heard that before? This is part of the curse in Genesis 3. This is about work. After Adam sinned, God told him that the nature of his work would be different. In Genesis 3.15, he tells Adam that the ground is cursed and will yield food only after he experienced pain. He says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Basically, you will work hard all your life, and then you will die. And that's what the preacher is saying here, too. You will work hard all of your life, and then you will die. Let that sink in. But it wasn't always like that. It wasn't. Before sin entered our world, Genesis 2.15 tells us, the Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work was created as part of Adam's purpose. He was to gain satisfaction from a job well done. He was to eat from the trees in the garden and enjoy the fruit of his labor. Every tree except one. And that's why the preacher here, he goes on to say in verse 22, so, I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. That is your lot. 
This is what you were created for, rejoicing in a job well done and enjoying the fruits of your labor. Work is good. Work is not evil. But it feels that way. It feels that way because sin made it hard and unsatisfying. But work was created to be good. And for Christians, work is not something we are supposed to endure until we can do something that's more important. Work for the Christian is something we are meant to redeem. Work for the Christian is something that we were meant to redeem. The preacher then asks an odd question. He asks the question, who really knows where the spirit goes after you die? And he expects the answer to be, no one. No one knows. See, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he has a sense that there is life beyond this world, but he really doesn't know what that looks like. At this point in history, the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed that yet. But we know what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Now, the preacher isn't denying this. His only point is this. If you observe the world from a secular perspective, if you observe the world as it is under the sun, there seems to be no difference between the death of humans and the death of animals. They all have the same fate. Let's move on to the preacher's next observation. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power. And there was no one to comfort them. This is heartbreaking. More so because we know it's true. When wickedness replaces justice and righteousness, and when people are no better than animals, then the powerful have no problem with oppressing the weak to achieve greater wealth or power. Vladimir Putin, you knew we had to go there. Vladimir Putin is using the power of the Russian army to crush the Ukrainian people. And our hearts ache for those who have died and those who will die in the coming weeks. Now, there is a long and tragic history of oppression between the Russian and Ukrainian people. In 1933, the Ukrainians resisted Russian mandates to collectivize farms. And that prompted Stalin to withhold food from them. 3.9 million Ukrainians died, but Stalin tried to exterminate them. Does that tell you why Ukrainians fight so hard? They know oppression. They have already lived it, and many would rather die fighting now. 
we see the determined faces of men and women willing to sacrifice their lives with slim hope that they will win. We see bombed hospitals and schools for children and pregnant mothers killed or trapped beneath the rubble. We see the faces of refugees leaving everything they own and their loved ones behind, knowing that they may never see them again. They're cold, they're hungry, they're afraid. The preacher, he's seen them too. In verses two and three he says, and I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the reality of our world. There are evil deeds done under the sun. Deeds so evil that without the love, restoration, and hope of Christ, no one could bear them. And we know God will eventually fix this. But, but, but where do we find hope now? I buy what the preacher says when he says, we are working in a wicked world, but how does that truth help my heart attitude towards my life and toward my work. This truth is so repulsive that we try to ignore it just to get through our day. We know it's happening. In the back of our minds, we know that oppression, wickedness, and unrighteousness are happening, but we put them out of our minds. But we also know that at any moment, one of them might reach out and touch us at any time. Now, how does that make you feel? What does it make you want to do? Do you see this and, and, and want to withdraw from life? For example, in your work, are your relationships so broken in your workplace that you just want to quit? Or are you on the other side? Do you, tend, do you tend toward control? Do you try to make the best of the situation by controlling the circumstances around you? Maybe, maybe if you work hard enough, you can keep this evil distant from you and your family. Now the preacher, he anticipates both reactions and he tells us there's a better way. The preacher tells us to work with dependent diligence. Let me say that again. Work with dependent diligence. Now that's easy to say. Work with dependent diligence. And it probably looks great on a coffee mug. Work with dependent diligence. You know, and you put that on your desk. But the preacher knows we need a little bit more than that. So he gives us an illustration using his hands to give more depth and sus substance. 
Please follow in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. He gives us three images to consider in this verse. Folded hands, two hands full, one hand full. First, folded hands. Looks right, doesn't it? Looks like I'm praying. But people who fold their hands cannot use their hands for work. Folded hands show that people don't want to work. This is one way that we vainly try to control the world around us. We choose to withdraw from it. First, let's be clear about who he's not talking about here. He's not talking about the disabled who can't work. He's not talking about retired people living off the fruits of prior labor or students. He's not talking about the, the students. Students, they have their own version of toil as they prepare for future careers. Neither is he talking about stay-at-home moms and dads who take care of little ones while the spouse is working. That work at home, my friends, um, is harder than anything that you will ever do in the office. Amen. <laughs> no. Great respect. Great respect. <laughs> now, we're talking here about those who are able to work but choose not to. The preacher calls them fools. He sarcastically says that choosing this is like eating your own flesh. That's quite an image. Proverbs 6.10 says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. What do we really control when we choose not to work? How does that really protect us? The preacher says this is foolish because we can't hide or run far enough to escape this wicked world. In fact, choosing this option draws evil toward us. Two hands full. Now on the face of it, two hands full seems like it's better than one. This is a picture of someone grabbing a hold of work with both hands. He's doing good work and earning as much as he can to support his family. But how much is enough? In my experience, the answer is just a little bit more. <laughs> the time goes by really fast. And before you know it, your life will be over. Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or maybe this illustration speaks to you differently. Maybe for you, this illustration says that we want to succeed and be viewed as faithful, talented, and competent. This picture reminds us of someone hanging on tightly as if his life depends upon it because, well, he thinks it does. He's afraid. 
He thinks that if he takes just one hand off for just one second, everything might spin out of control. And the preacher would say, my son, my daughter, when did you start believing the lie that you were ever in control? You cannot control the evil around you. You can never be clever enough, wealthy enough, or powerful enough. These strategies, that the, these are the same strategies that the preacher tells us live under the sun. He's tried them all, and they don't work. I'm an expert at holding on with two hands. I just need to confess that to you right now. I'm an expert at holding on tightly with two hands. And I have learned the hard way that holding on with two hands comes with a price. That price is, as he says, toil and striving after the wind. For me, that price is advanced heart disease. I have that. By God's grace, I was diagnosed with a CT scan before I had a heart attack. That news changed the course of my life. That diagnosis told me that, that, that I need to change. Well, has my heart changed towards work since then? That was two years ago. And since then, a little. I still struggle with it, honestly. And I'm here to tell you that I'm probably more in need of hearing this message than many of you. I need to learn the preacher's better way. The better way. Better is one hand full of quietness. There is a way, the preacher says, that we can put one hand firmly on our work and hold the other open, trusting in God. With the closed hand, we apply our efforts to work and enjoy that work as God intended. And with the open hand, we trust in the kindness of our Lord, who ultimately controls everything. There is only one God, and I am not he. Another way to say this is working with dependent diligence. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, turn with me to Colossians 3.23. I want to go there because it says the same thing, but just in a little bit different way. Paul agrees with the preacher. Paul also wants us to work with dependent diligence. Follow me as I read. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ as you work. He wants you to work heartily. 
He wants you to engage fully with your work. Do it well. Make the world a little better through your work. Take satisfaction in a job well done. And yes, enjoy the fruits of your labor. But diligence is not the end of it. We work with dependence. Why? Because we have an inheritance from the Lord that is already ours through Christ. This is an eternal perspective that the world doesn't have. See, Paul is agreeing with the preacher that what you see under the sun is not the entire picture. With the closed hand, we work diligently. In doing so, we redeem the work that God has created us to do. With the open hand, we acknowledge that we don't really control anything. God is sovereign over all things of this earth. And our final inheritance, our real reward, has already been made sure in Christ. Revelation 21, 4 and 5 says, There will come a day when God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. A time will come when justice and righteousness are not pushed aside. A time will come when oppressions, the oppressions that we see now, they will cease. A time will come when once again, a work will be satisfying and we will enjoy the fruits of our labor in ways beyond our imagination. One day, God will make everything right. One day, he will make all things new. That day will come. Until that day comes, let us seek to redeem our work with dependent diligence. Let's pray.